Well, let me begin with a story this morning. Uh, George Whitfield was perhaps the most famous evangelical preacher in early American colonies. He came to saving faith during his university studies in England. Now, because his family was poor and couldn't afford school, he had made arrangements to essentially become a servant for the faculty and some other students while he was there at school in order to get free tuition. And so up to this point in his life, Whitfield had tried as hard as he could to do good works and to follow God's law. He thought he was a good Christian because of the good things that he was doing. And so now here at school, he had this fresh opportunity. He, he cleaned rooms, he carried books, he tutored students. He really made himself feel like he was racking up favor with God. And yet something profoundly changed in him when he was confronted with the gospel. He read a book by a Scottish pastor named Henry Scougal called The Life of God in the Soul of Man. And Whitfield was convicted by this reality that he was still lost despite his attempts to earn God's favor through his good works. He came to understand the biblical message of the gospel. Salvation is by grace through faith. It's a work of God through and through. You see, this is the key. This is what Whitfield understood. It's that the gospel is about reconciliation to God the Father, carried out through God the Son, in the power of God the Spirit. He came to see that redemption was the gracious, unmerited, loving gift of the triune God. So after graduation, this all happened while he was in his university studies, the Church of England didn't assign him a pastorate to go and, and, and serve in a local church. And so he didn't have a, a ministry specifically, and so he began preaching in parks and fields. He was reaching out to people who normally didn't attend church. And his exposition of God's word, along with his very passionate and dramatic preaching style, he, he, he cut his teeth doing drama as a kid, and so his preaching style was very dramatic and, and passionate, and, and he made this huge impact as crowds of people turned their lives to Christ. Now, in 1740, Whitfield traveled across the Atlantic to go to the, uh, to go to the American colonies, and he preached every day, sometime for multiple times a day, to crowds as large as 30,000 people. And they know this because he became friends with Ben Franklin. Ben Franklin, during one of his sermons, paced off, how far away can I hear him? And then he drew a circle around that and counted how many people could fit in that circle, and it was over 30,000 who could be within earshot. Over the course... Of the next 30 years, Whitfield made seven trips to America and preached over 18,000 sermons to an estimated 10 million people. Oh, he was famous for preaching John 3, verse 7, the story of Jesus and Nicodemus, where Jesus says, you must be born again. He preached this sermon so many times that some of his critics came to him after a while and they're like, dude, why do you keep preaching this same verse over and over again? And he looks them straight in the eye and he says, because you must be born again. <laughs> his legacy 
still reverberates in churches today who embrace the biblical gospel of reconciliation to the Father through the redemption of the Son and the power of the Spirit. And so, friends, what we're doing this morning, we're circling back to John 14, taking extra time to ponder the deep truths in this part of the Gospel of John. And so if you're kind of just joining us this morning, uh, we had this, we had a, a messages two Sundays ago and last Sunday on John 14. And so we want to go back this week to specifically focus on the richness of the Trinitarian theology that comes through in this chapter. So here's what I want to help you see this morning. John 14 reveals to us the distinct Trinitarian shape of the gospel. It unfolds the truth that God is three in one. And this chapter invites us to find hope and joy in the triune God. In other words, the Trinity is good news. And my heart for our church this morning is that we would stand in awe of the triune God. That we would see a fresh vision of his glory. That we would realize the great gift that we have in being brought into communion with him. So with that in mind, open to John 14. And what I'd like to do is read the entire chapter. Now remember, we've studied this the last couple weeks. But I want to read the whole chapter again. Because it's wonderful to hear God's word read out loud. But I want you to hear it with this sense of the Trinitarian shape in this chapter. So what we're going to do is, is look again at Jesus' teaching here to his disciples in the upper room. And remember, we have to, to hear these words remembering that the disciples are in distress at this moment. And so they don't understand what's going to happen the next day when Jesus goes to the cross. And so Jesus explains what is to come. And I want you to listen to this chapter with an ear to that Father and Son and Holy Spirit as the triune God comes through in the text. So let's read John 14. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me so that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know the way. We don't know where you're going. So how can we know the way? And Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. And Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip, even after I've been among you such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. Very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the work I've been doing. And they will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. And I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. If you love me, keep my commands. 
And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and to be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Before long, the world will, will not see me anymore, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. On that day, you will realize that I am in the Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love them and show myself to them. Then Judas, not Judas Iscariot, said, But Lord, why do you intend to show us yourself, or show yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus replied, Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them, and we will come to them and make our home with them. Anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. All this I have spoken while still with you. But the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. You heard me say I am going away and I'm coming back to you. If you loved me, you would be glad that I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. I've told you now before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe I will not say much more to you, for the prince of this world is coming. He has no hold over me, but he comes so that the world may learn that I love the Father and do exactly what the Father has commanded me. Come now, let us leave. Amen. This is the word of God. All right. Here's what we're going to do as we approach this text. There's a, there's a Trinitarian shape to this text that unfolds the biblical truth of the gospel. And so here's what it's going to look like. You'll see it on the screen here. In this chapter, verses 1 through 4, we see the good news that we are invited into the intimate relationship with God the Father. Then we see in verses 5 to 14, the good news that the only way to enter this relationship is through God the Son. Then verses 15 to 31, we see the good news that the transforming power to know God and to walk in his ways comes through the presence of God, the Spirit. You can see the, the flow of this chapter in, in unfolding the, the reconciliation to have a relationship with the Father through the redemption that comes by the Son alone. And then as we know God and walk in his ways by the power of the Spirit. So, let's follow that shape as we go through this chapter. Let's look at how this text describes the good news of Father, Son, and Spirit. So, let's jump in. God the Father, verses 1 through 4. Now, if you notice, as Jesus opens this, um, this section, he uses household language. And, and understanding this image of the household is really critical. Okay, people live in a household, typically with their family, it's got this dimension and background of this sense of family living together. And in the ancient world, you have to understand that it was very common in the ancient world for multiple generations to live in the same household. And so, in fact, when a child would grow up and they would go off and get married, after they got married, that couple would often 
actually build an addition onto the family household and they would come and move to the same location and live in multiple generations within the same home and you would have them all there together alongside all of that extended family. Friends, don't take this lightly if you understand this image. You are being invited into God the Father's household. Let this sink in. When we look at images in the, in the New Testament, Christ the groom, his bride, the church, being brought into perfect union, fellowship. There's a place that Jesus is going to prepare for us and the Father's household, like he's building an addition here, an addition there, for you and for me that we each have a home now in God's family dwelling with him forever. Friends, what you need to understand, this is, this is the center of the good news, is the reconciliation we have with God the Father, that through Jesus in the, in the gospel, you can be forgiven of sin, you can be washed clean and reconciled to the Father freely by his mercy and grace so that you can be adopted into God's family. And friends, this is for his praise and glory. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 6 says this. Look on the screen. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. Friends, what you need to understand and see the key to this, especially as we understand the Trinity, is that the reconciling love that we receive by grace through faith when we are adopted into God's family flows from the perfection of the love that has eternally existed within the very being of the triune God. Let me just let that sink in for a moment. <laughs> the very love we receive by God's grace is an overflow of the perfection of the love that has eternally existed within God himself. This is a critical component to understanding the Trinity. When the Apostle John, who wrote the Gospel of John and then also wrote 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, when the Apostle John writes these words in 1st John 4, 8, God is love. This means that love is essential to his being. It's not something that God discovered or that he decided to do at some point in history, some kind of a behavior he chooses to exercise. But instead, God has eternally existed as three in one in the perfection of love within himself. In other words, his love is infinitely flowing within the one being in three persons. He doesn't need any other being. He doesn't need us to be lovely or to love him in order to complete him in some fashion. He's not dependent on others to love or to be loved or to express love. 
This is, this is foundational for how we understand the very eternal nature of God. It's the foundation of the gospel and his reconciling gracious love to us. And I'll tell you, there's, there's some, uh, you'll, be, you'll be in, encounter sometimes some ways of thinking or, or systems of belief that, that teach that Jesus was not eternally begotten of the Father, but that was, he was created at some point prior to the creation of the world. And if this were the case, then being a father would not be essential to God's being. There would be a time before God loved. Love would be something he would acquire at some point. It would be conditional upon the lovability of another being. In other words, Jesus would then have to earn God's love. And if this were true, we'd have to change our entire language here. 1 John 4, 8 would make no sense. Instead of saying God is love in his being, you would have to say something like God has love. God expresses love. God has found love. See, there's a theologian named Jared Wilson. He puts it this way. He says, a solitary God cannot be love. He may learn to love. He may yearn for love. But he cannot in himself be love. Because love requires an object. Real love requires relationship. If God were not a trinity but merely a solitary divinity, he could neither be love nor be God. If he were to discover or create love at some point, he would have been deficient prior to that. But he is love in and of himself. Friends, if, if, if God were not love in his being, then it would destroy the good news of the gospel. If love were conditional, if God's love was not eternal within him, himself, if Jesus were merely created or could lose the Father's love, we would be horribly shackled in the same danger of losing God's favor. There would be no security in God's love. God would merely be a judge who condemns us and is saying, you better shape up. Rather than seeing a totally different perspective, we would be still lost and dead in our sinful flesh. But friends, let me just share with you the good news. There can be a place for you in God's household adopted into his family, into sonship, daughtership, to, to have fellowship with and be in relationship with in the perfections of God's own love that has eternally flowed in all of its beautiful fullness of his being, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He invites you by his grace into communion with him. How do we come into this promise, this beautiful reconciling fellowship with God the Father? How do we receive this gift of intimate relationship with him? What is the path? Or maybe you could say, who is the way? If you know John 14, as we just read. We need to now talk about God the Son. So this is now verses 5 to 14. So go back to verse 5 with me. Okay, remember, Thomas asks this classic question, okay? Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And he doesn't quite understand that Jesus is talking about his ascension to heaven, his being uh, in, in, with God the Father until his return at the end of history to bring all of God's children into the new heavens and new earth. This sense of being welcomed into and being in God's household forever. And so what Jesus does here in the text 
If you remember, he responds with the sixth I am statement of the Gospel of John, which I explained a couple weeks ago, is recalling the self-revelation of Yahweh in, to Moses at the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, where God reveals to Moses his name, I am who I am. And now here, Jesus' words in verses 6 and 7. They're not merely an exclusive truth claim, which they are, but they reveal something profound about the unfolding revelation of the triune God, that Jesus is God in the flesh. I want you to think afresh of these words from the disciples' perspective, pious Israelites, the, uh, the ones who, who believe in the living God, and then hear these words again that Jesus says that would blow their minds. Pick it up in verse 9 and read through with me through the beginning part of verse 10 as Jesus responds to Philip who says, show us the Father. Verse 9, Jesus says, don't you know me, Philip, even after I've been among you such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? See, this, this, this description of Jesus being in the Father, the Father in him, it, it's a, it, there's, a, there's a theological word that we need to try and wrap our minds around that's called perichoresis. It's been around in church history for a long time, and I'm going to teach you what that word means. Theologians call this the perichoresis of the Trinity, which is the mutual indwelling of the persons of the Trinity, fully one with each other, each in full possession of the divine essence, truly three, truly one. This is the, the, the description of the threeness and oneness of God in who he is, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And, and there's a, a, a pastor, a theologian named Kevin DeYoung, he, he describes perichoresis like this. He says what perichoresis maintains is that you cannot have one person of the Trinity without having the other two. And you cannot have any person of the Trinity without having the fullness of God. This is why Jesus can say, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. There is no division. There's no separation. There's, and yet there's oneness between the persons one essence, three persons in eternally loving unity. Or as theologian Wayne Grudem, he says it this way, God is three persons, each person is fully God, and there's one God. Or like the fourth century theologian Augustine, he says, each are in each, and all in each, and each in all, and all are one. Are you confused yet? <laughs> Friends, I think when we approach these realities of who God is, that we can struggle in our finite minds to comprehend the beautiful majesty of who he is in his being. But I'll let you in on a little secret. That's perfectly normal. Because God is so utterly unique and beautiful 
and, and, and is inscrutable and no one compares with him. There is, it's, it's, the Trinity is not a concept that we, can, that we could try and fully grasp in our finite minds, but a truth that is revealed that should cause us to stand in awe and worship. The reason is there's no one like him. If there was anyone else like him, they would be worthy of worship. The reality that he is so utterly unique and hard, it's hard to explain and wrap our minds around it is why he is God. His holiness and his perfections are utterly unique. It's precisely why we stand in awe of him. And friends, it is in this revealed truth that we learn that Jesus is the fullness of deity in bodily form, as Paul writes in Colossians 2, verse 9, that if you've seen him, you've seen the Father, that we see the purposes of God carried out in the person of Christ. I mentioned Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to kind of Bounce around with Ephesians as well here. Ephesians 1 verses 7 and 8 say this. In him, Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. Remember, it flows from the eternal love that has always existed within himself. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ. Friends, in the gospel, we have the revelation of God's plan that in, for salvation, that we have reconciliation to the Father through Christ the Son, and it is applied to us by the regenerating and sanctifying work of God the Spirit. And so this is what we're going to look at next, the last section of our text. God the Spirit, verses 15 to 31. Now, this final uh, section of the text reveals the promise of the personal presence of God dwelling with us by the Spirit. Now, the, the text here says the Holy Spirit is another advocate. The extension of and application of Christ, our defender and redeemer, proceeding from the Father and the Son as the person of the Trinity who brings about our regeneration and sanctification. Born again, as George Whitfield would preach 18,000 times. New creations by the Spirit of God. There's a, a theologian named Herman Bovink, 100 years ago, he said this about, about these truths. He said, Just as no one comes to the Father but through the Son, it's John 14, 6, so no one can say that Jesus is Lord except through the Holy Spirit, 1 Corinthians 12, 3. It's through the Spirit that we have fellowship with the Father and the Son, and it's in the Holy Spirit that God himself, through Christ, dwells in our hearts. Do you see even the Trinitarian shape of how he speaks? God communing with us through Christ and the Spirit dwelling in us. God himself through Christ dwelling in our hearts, as Bavink says. Friends, what we need to understand this morning is that the gift of the Holy Spirit is good news. We need his enlivening and quickening power within us. We need his strength. We need his guidance. We need his wisdom. We need his conviction. We need his truth. And we need his comforting presence. 
Let me just take a moment to clarify one thing as an aside. When we, and whenever we talk about the Holy Spirit, we need to be careful to remember that the Holy Spirit is a person and not a force or a power. So when we speak about the Holy Spirit, we use words like he and him, not it. He is fully God. He is in full possession of the divine essence. He is God dwelling in us. <laughs> Mind-blowing reality of this is just unbelievable, friends. It's through the person of the Holy Spirit that we are incorporated into fellowship with the triune God. And it's the Spirit... He is the down payment that points ahead to the face-to-face -face presence of God in the new heavens and new earth. Just listen to how Ephesians 1 continues to unfold. This is verses 13 and 14. The text says, You also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Remember what we just heard, reconciled to the Father and adopted into his family through Christ the Son. When you believed... Paul says, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. The, the good news of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit results in praise and worship. It is a work of God through and through. It's what Whitfield discovered and understood when he came to saving faith. So, friends, as we look at this, I want to make sure that, we, uh, that we're very careful about how we define and clarify and understand the Trinity and especially some uh, errors that can be made along the way, especially in church history. It's critical that we think very carefully about this doctrine because rightly understood, the biblical vision of the triune God should move us to heartfelt devotion and awe and praise. The freedom of the gospel. So here's the, a very simple way of understanding the correct biblical understanding of the Trinity. Okay, you'll see it on the screen here. There is one God. God is three persons. Each person is fully God. And you see, I marked down a few example texts that you could go to for these. So there is one God, which we know from Deuteronomy chapter 6 and Mark 12, 29. The God is three persons, which we see in Matthew 3, 16 to 17, and then Matthew 28, 19. The Great Commission in the name, singular, of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One name, three persons. And then each person is fully God. John 14, which we're reading today, and then Ephesians 4, 4 to 5, describe this. Now, friends, as we try and understand this, and you, you describe the God is one, he's three persons, each person is fully God, this is a truth. These are realities to be received by faith. It is not ultimately... Something that can be explained by human reason alone. When we try and force these truths into rational explanations, things that we can wrap our minds around, we typically fall into one of three errors that correspond with each of these three truths. The first one, you'll see on the screen here, is what's called tritheism. 
This denies that there is one God. And, and what, what, as you see tritheism kind of come through, this error places too much emphasis on the distinction of Father, Son, and Spirit, making them separate beings. So there's some classic analogies, and all analogies of the Trinity fall short. Let's just like imagine that right away up front, okay? Because if there was something that could perfectly compare to God, it would also be worthy of worship. God is unique. God is utterly unique in that way. One uh, example of tritheism is uh, the example of an egg. That some people have used that. There's a shell, there's a white, and there's a yolk, yet it's all an egg. The problem with that is you can pull the parts. You can pull it apart. You can take the shell off. You can separate the yolk and the whites. And, and that denies the essential oneness of the being of God. That he's one. Okay, the next one is modalism. Modalism denies that God is three persons. And so this error tries to protect the oneness of God by saying that there's only one God who appears in different forms, in different times, in different modes, and reveals himself in those different ways at different times. Moments. And so there's one God, but in the Old Testament, we see God as the Father. And then in the Gospels, we see God as the Son. And then later on in the church, we see God as the Holy Spirit. It's the same God, but he's just appearing in different forms, in different ways. That's modalism. Now, the, one example of this as a metaphor is water. People use this sometimes to try and describe the Trinity. That water can exist as a solid, as a liquid, and as a gas. The only problem is that molecule of water can only be one at one time. It can't be all of it all at once. And so it breaks down because you don't have this sense of the, th the three in one, all at, uh, at one time, God is all three. Now, the third uh, term to understand is what's called subordinationism, which is kind of a broader theme or broader topic that denies that each person of the Trinity is fully God. This expresses itself in a myriad of ways in church history. And, and, and this error teaches that Jesus and the Holy Spirit are less than God the Father. And so there, there can be this sincere desire to protect that God is one, his authority, his sovereignty, and at one, at one moment, elevating that, but then lessening the divine nature of the Son, the fact that the, whole, the Son and the Holy Spirit are co-eternal, co-equal. But friends, this has disastrous results for the gospel, which I hope we've already started to understand today. Our understanding of worship and the ongoing sanctifying work and presence of God with us. Now, one of the, if you understand, you go, okay, here's some ways that we shouldn't understand it. What's a good way to try and wrap our minds around this reality? There's a diagram that looks like this. This is called the shield of the Trinity. It's been around for many hundreds of years in church history to try and understand some terminology. It's not a metaphor. It's just to get our terms straight. So what you see in this is, the Father is not the Son, but the Father is God and the Son is God. Just like the Holy Spirit is not the Father, but the Holy Spirit is God and the Father is God and the Holy Spirit's not the Son, and yet they're both God. And you can see how the terminology helps us to understand the three in one. Now, if you want to 
even dive a slight bit deeper here or look at some examples of church history and how the church has talked about the Trinity. Um, Pastor Steve um, put together a one-page kind of primer on understanding the Trinity. It's on the back table, so grab that on your way out. It goes into a slight bit more detail and helps us to see the different confessions of the church over time. But here's where I want to land, okay? If we're trying to, to, to step in to try and get our minds around the beautiful good news of the triune God, I want you to think and, and I want to ask you, what impact does this truth make on our lives? Why is the reality of the triune God good news? What do you love about the Trinity? What causes you to be in awe of the triune God? What does it look like to daily live in the reality of reconciliation to the Father through secure in your redemption through the Son and then empowered and comforted by the Holy Spirit? I'll share a, a, just a small example of this. Personally, this last couple weeks, um, the, last, the last week or two, for whatever reasons, I've just been... Um, having, just feeling kind of discouraged, but also having some headaches and dizziness and just like not feeling good. And I've experienced this sometimes with stress in the past. And so I'm just kind of recognizing that. But on Tuesday this week, I was having a really just a difficult day with that. And I was supposed to, I was here in the morning, and then I was supposed to go to KDWA to record a radio spot that they do with a rotation of the Ministerial Association every month. And so I was just struggling that morning, got in the car to drive down to KDWA, and I like, had literally no idea what I was going to talk about. And it was one of those moments, just feeling empty and weak, brain fog, tired, just like not in good shape. And I remember just driving down the highway, down into Hastings, just praying, Lord, I don't know what to say. What should I talk about? And what I felt the Lord leading me to, prompting me to talk about, was about weakness and difficulty, and how in the midst of that, we see and know the love of the Father through Christ the Son, by the comforting presence and defense of the Holy Spirit as our advocate. So I shared a little bit in this radio time about how God has ministered to me through the comfort of knowing I'm loved by the Father, that redemption is only through Christ, that the Holy Spirit uses, even uses the body of Christ to minister to each other. And so I shared about my experience as a kid when my twin brother had bone cancer and I was 12 years old and our family was so loved and cared for by our church. I just got to see God's love and mercy and grace and forgiveness and comfort come through that moment. And throughout this story, as I'm talking, we're sitting there with, you know, the microphone and everything. The host of the show who's interviewing me starts crying. And as tears are welling up, and we finally end the show, and the mics are turned off, she looks me straight in the eye, and she just says, God is so good. Friends, in the midst of my own weakness, this, this woman who's interviewing me caught a glimpse of the triune God in his goodness and beauty and perfection and grace. 
There was this weightiness to what we talked about precisely because the deep truths of the Trinity are playing out as the triune God is doing his work in her heart through the weak and fumblings around of me because it's not about any one of us. It's about God's spirit and doing what he's doing. And so what happens, I walked out of that radio station praising God, seeing how he's working, seeing afresh the truths of 2 Corinthians 12, 9, where God says to Paul in his struggles, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Here's what I want you to understand. It is in our desperate need that the triune God will most powerfully reveal himself to you. As I said earlier, my heart for you is that you would stand in awe of the triune God as you see afresh this vision of his glory and the great gift it is to be brought into communion with him, reconciled to the Father, secure because it's by Christ's blood in fellowship and communion with the sanctifying, regenerating work of the Spirit as he comforts us. There's a pastor and theologian named A.W. Tozer who wrote about apprehending the reality of the triune God. How do we apprehend who he is? And he wrote a classic book called The Pursuit of God. I'd highly recommend it. And this is what he says that I'll conclude with. As we begin to focus upon God... Spiritual things will take shape before our inner eyes, enabling us to see God even as his promise to the pure in heart. A new God consciousness will seize upon us and we shall begin to taste and hear and inwardly feel the God who is our life and our all. More and more, as our faculties grow sharper and more sure, God will become to us the great all. And his presence will be the glory and wonder of our lives. This is what I want so desperately for you. That we would stand in awe of the triune God. To find our hope and joy in the good news of what he has done. Who he is and what he has done for us. Let's pray. Father, we come to you with the great privilege and honor that we get to come into your presence and speak with you directly through Christ the Son and by the power of the Holy Spirit that we have access to you, our Father. We've been adopted into your family. Lord, and we trust by faith. We see the work you're doing in us by the Spirit. Give us a fresh vision even now as we go to our time of communion of what you have done to reconcile us, to transform and change us, to promise a future with you in your presence. Thank you, Lord, for who you are and what you've done. Let us grasp afresh today the good news. We love you. We worship you. We stand in awe of you. In Jesus' name, amen.